Today on The Topping Show, Ben Shapiro versus Barbie ignites social media, Twitter relabeled X and still beating threads, YouTube slashing ad revenue, Norway leader steals glasses and then quits, Ukraine offense is delayed due to a lack of arms, YouTube slashes ad revenue, Tesla evaluating India for $24,000 EV, AMC scratches idea for variable pricing, robots to steal your cars, JC Penny moves back to their iconic headquarters, and Stanley Black & Decker closes US factory for craftsmen because they couldn't get the robots to work. All of that and much, much more on The Topping Show. Thank you everyone for taking the time to tune in today. Today's episode of Topping Show is sponsored by Topping Technologies. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added research services company with a special proficiency in IT security. Heck, see their founder release twice a day. Guys say he's quite handsome and brilliant. He's me, that's the joke. If you're an IT leader or business owner and need a little assistance, you can reach the team at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Now, going on to the business part of the podcast, you have JCPenney moving back into their iconic headquarters. Now, their iconic headquarters is located over in Plano, Texas, over off Legacy Drive, one of the largest and probably most iconic buildings of the area. Used to occupy the whole thing. And it looks like the a little bit over more than 120-year-old company is now moving back. So it looks like they're going to take approximately... 320,000 square feet of the 86 acre campus, which a lot of people are calling Legacy West as you have Legacy having the highway divide the areas. We have Legacy East, which is the shops Legacy that many people know locally for having a bunch of iconic headquarters uh, from Hilti to the old EDS HPE offices. And then you have a bunch of the shops, kind of the name implies, we have restaurants and what have you. And it looks like the new office for the JCPenney's occupancy is gonna have about 2000 employees has everything from pickleball ports, arcades, golf simulator, got fitness centers, open office space. It'll be interesting to see, hopefully the iconic brand can make a comeback. They went through bankruptcy about 12 and a half months ago. Uh, or yeah, yeah, about 12 and a half months ago. So they're under new leadership and new ownership and hopefully they are able to make a comeback. Now, other interesting business news, you have AMC Movie Theater scratching the idea for their variable pricing. Now, that's probably gonna be the best case going forward. I did a poll on LinkedIn and granted it's a small sample size, about 3,000 people saw the question. The question being, should AMC or movie theaters in general have variable pricing? And 85% of the 200 people who voted said, no, they should not have that. Now, variable pricing would mean basically you pay more and you get to go closer to the screen or you have more of a premium spot, whether it be right in the center, middle or what have you. So there'd be a variable pricing. And of course, everyone immediately pushed back saying, yeah, we don't want that. That's not gonna fly in America. Now, interestingly enough, movie theaters in other countries do have assigned seating, where it's this very specific case where you have the assigned, but last time I went out of the country, I didn't notice that it was actually a variable pricing. So perhaps that was the issue in the United States specifically with this initiative, as these movie theaters are trying to grasping with how on earth do they make money when normal people are just literally streaming things at their house or just downloading things at their house. They don't want to pay 15, 20, $35 for a bucket of popcorn that costs 18 cents to make. The use case for movie theaters is getting harder and harder, which is really why the only time you see people going to movie theaters is when you have these big blockbuster billion dollar productions where you want to see explosions on the big screen and stuff like that. The average, you know, that's why you don't see a lot of the small movies being made or the medium movies being made it's almost as if they wiped out a whole category of movies because of this interesting phenomenon. And hopefully AMC will be able to make a comeback in terms of, you know, they've all been struggling in terms of the retail experience of movie theaters, but they seem to be doing a little bit better than competition, hopefully. Now, other interesting businesses, you're gonna have robots stealing your cars. Yes, that was not a joke. Now, this is actually just a couple months after you had Ford Motor Company filing a patent so that they can actually repo your car remotely. Because of course, nowadays you're buying a car, especially an electrical vehicle, is basically a computer on wheels, just as complex and just as unreliable, many would say. And if you're, you actually had individual patents filed by Ford so that if you're delayed on your payments for your vehicle, they could remove some features such as disabling the air conditioning, disabling the radio, maybe the heated seats. So giving them all more control of your vehicle which also plays into the theme of I like to have more control, which my, I, I prefer many analog technologies and my cars will always have three pedals 
also known as a, also known as a stick shift. The most fun you can ever have in a vehicle, bar none. I highly recommend you go have that experience before it's too late as they become more and more of a rare experience to have. Now, in terms of the robots stealing your cars, this is actually coming from a company by the name of RNW, which C minus for marketing, not very inspiring in any way, and I can think. And their real name is apparently called Recovering North Recovery Northwest. And they are actually a towing company, so they specialize in everything from towing heavy equipment to you know your regular sedans and compact vehicles, and they even do recovery of classic parking violations. Now they actually are inventing a technology, so they have this robot and it's obviously quite big, probably the size of a Volkswagen. And the little robot will actually go to your vehicle, lift your vehicle up, and move it wherever they want. Whether that's moving it outside of the illegally parked section or just actually going to the a landfill or the repossession lot. But it seems as though the robots are getting smarter and uprising. Now time shall tell to see how widely adapted this is because right now the cost would be pretty prohibitive, I would think, compared to the traditional towing methodology where you have an independent towing operator, they show up, they jack up the car, they leave. But you also have the cost of human capital, then the increase of all the insurance and the liabilities, where you have the human factor, and the human error is always present. So it'll be interesting to see how long it takes for this technology to be rolled out on a wider basis, and what's the adoption rate in the towing industry in the community. Time shall tell. Now, other interesting business news, you have actually more automotive news with Tesla evaluating a $24,000 EV vehicle, which is ridiculously economical when you consider the Nissan Leaf, which many, that is probably one of the most well-known mass-produced electric vehicles, also known as being a joke just in terms of reliability, styling, or lack thereof, but they were able to mass-produce it nevertheless, and 18 people bought it. I joke, they probably have a couple dozen purchasers, but the Nissan Leaf was known for being a cheap EV vehicle. That was is right above the engineering probably put into a golf cart. Maybe a little bit more, I think they had air conditioning. But Tesla's for most of my lifetime, well, for most of the company's career actually, they've been, a, they, they've been a premium product. Their first vehicle was a sports car with basically body panels of a Lotus, uh, Lotus Elise. And ironically enough, Elon actually said that with how much money they thought they were gonna save by retrofitting a car versus make one ground up, they should have made it ground up. But then you have the, all the, their sedan, I think it's Model S, the SUV. They're more premium products. The first most popular one was the, the Model S with the four doors. And that was over a hundred grand for an EV vehicle, which a lot of celebrities and it's a nice way to see people who are self-indulgent or they want to brag. Um, not bombastic. People who like to project their virtues. But they probably bought up those vehicles regardless of the gaps or, you know, as a funny meme with all the door gaps and lack of quality control. But they were the first purchasers. They're the people who spent the most on money. But Elon's long-term goal all along was that business model. Come out with the premium product first. It gives you the profit margins to reinvest in the business. And as you're building it up, you can actually get to that large scale where eventually you can get the entry-level vehicles. Traditionally, entry-level vehicles are garbage, fiscally speaking especially, they usually lose money. Like General Motors, when they had the Chevy Cruze, and I was in the automotive industry, they would, a dealership would lose about $485 every time they sold a Chevy Cruze if they didn't sell anything else. So that means they have to sell financing, accessories, all that stuff, otherwise they lose money because entry-level compact vehicles, it's a price game. People who are buying them, typically, they are price conscious. It's the antithesis or the exact opposite of an SUV, which is why you'll never see SUVs go away because that's where so much profit is. People... The perception of quality is greater than the cost. That's why people in the United States, especially, they're willing to pay more for a crossover, an SUV, or a truck, which those are all extremely profitable things, which is also why Ford got out of the compact car game. They focused mainly on the Ford F-150 series, their trucks, SUVs, and now they have the, the EV models as well. Now, it'll be interesting to see, this is from an anonymous for, source telling Reuters, and it looks like Tesla's taking steps to create a more affordable electric car, sending representatives to India this month and discuss building a factory there. Now, they've had issues in the past where they've had negotiations fall through with the Prime Minister of India because obviously when you're doing business with different companies, countries and companies, they all have different stipulations of what they want. Some other countries, there's a little bit more of a quid pro, quid pro quo, uh, also known as bribery. United States, that's mainly out of style and out of culture in terms of it's not acceptable, at least in my IT culture, it's, there's competitors that do it, it's highly frowned upon and I find them morally vacuous and disgusting that they actually 
succeed doing it, but it's much more rare than other areas of the globe where there is almost like a custom. Now, the specific negotiation for the specific factory in India would be to produce that entry-level Tesla, and after the conversion to the ruble, or not rubles, to the India's currency, the United States, it'd be about $24,000. Now, that would be insanely good because that's about 25% cheaper than Tesla's current lowest cost model, which is the Model 3 sedan sold in China, and that one's $32,000, which is pretty pretty damn cheap for Tesla. And it'll be interesting to see how quickly are they able to get into negotiations or just even go through. Yet Apple spent years to get their very first store in India. And that was actually about six months ago where the CEO, Tim Cook, actually flew out there. And it was because they actually had have manufacturing facilities there. That was a prerequisite for them allowing to have actually an independent brick and mortar store. They had third party sellers, of course, but there are a couple of hoops you have to jump through. And how many hoops does Tesla have to jump through? And how many does Elon want to jump through? That's probably going to be the biggest question. India is one of the fastest growing markets, the whole, well, I was going to say Europe in general. I mean, Tesla has actually delivered more EVs in the first half of 2023 than Porsche, which that shouldn't be even in the, all the companies that have EVs, that shouldn't be it, in my opinion. Yeah, Volkswagen, BMW, Mercedes combined. So they're, they're doing pretty damn good. It'll be interesting to see do the negotiations fall through again like it did a couple of years ago? Or are they able to, able to collaborate to the fruition and set up a factory there as Tesla factories go up all over the globe and just continue to exponentially get bigger and bigger and bigger? Time, as I always say, shall tell. Now, going on to the culture part of the podcast, you have Ben Shapiro versus Barbie and social media ignites. Now, Ben Shapiro is the very famous conservative commentator. He's actually the co-CEO of The Daily Wire, one of the fastest growing conservative media companies headquartered out of Nashville, Tennessee. And they're probably best known for, you know, their uh, commentators. You got Ben Shapiro, Matt Walsh. You also have Michael Knowles, comment section with Brett Cooper. Those probably, then Jeremy Boring's the co-CEO. People know him because of the razors and the chocolate. But they're pretty well known. They're actually seem to be growing exponentially. Now, Ben Shapiro did a whole 43 minute long critique of the film which Barbie is actually rated PG-13, which kind of shows you kind of where they're tailoring the audience. And Ben's video is 43 minutes long. So it's quite detailed. And if you want, maybe we'll put some type of compilation together. We'll break down his breakdown or something funny like that. Let me know in the comments so that's something that sounds moderately interested. Now, it's interesting to note that the first critique actually came from a writer from the Daily Beast, Aaron Gloria Ryan, who... I don't know why she's cheating. She's got three first names? That's fascinating. Most people have one first name, sometimes two. That gets suspicious enough. But three first names? Most suspicious, to say the least. And it is hilariously cliche how she evaluates Ben. So her critique of his critique and him, and again, this isn't second, it's hilarious how she leans into the cliche. So it wasn't her first sentence, but like the third sentence of the whole thing, she said, quote, not to be sexist, but he doesn't look good. He looks tired, agitated, dirty, darty-eyed, even destroyed, unquote. So it is kind of hilarious. The very first thing she did critique was his appearance, which spot on in terms of cliche and critiquing. Before she looks into his content and his actual review of the movie or the points he's trying to make, she immediately just goes to, oh yeah, he's not styling. Now, some would say, Quite the opposite. Ben perhaps was styling for the movie. He actually dressed up as Ken to see the movie. I was a little disappointed he didn't dye his hair to go full, really get full into the Ryan Gosling character. But I know maybe he was pressed for time. Now, that video that Ben Shapiro produced, within 48 hours, it got 1.3 million views, which is astronomically successful for YouTube. Most videos are lucky to break 1,000 views. And actually, now that I think about it, don't forget to take two likes, subscribe, and comment, because obviously it helps the channel out. The more you share it, the more we can grow together, the better we can increase the production quality. Now, when it comes to Ben's critique of the whole film, he mainly noted, or the quote that many people have taken away was his saying, quote, angry feminist claptrap that alienates men from women, unquote. Which, yes, seems to be pretty true. Now, I did watch the whole 43-minute critique that Ben makes the movie, and the whole film is basically that in a nutshell. It makes men look terrible, of course. And 
I don't know who's dumb enough at Mattel to greenlight this, but in the movie they make fun of Mattel and they call Mattel sexist. And they they implied that Mattel had a board of directors as all man is old boys club. But if you take two eighths of a second to actually Google the board directors at Mattel, I believe it's a five six or six five six or six five split or breakdown of men versus women. So in terms of a board share, that's unprecedented and you usually do not see that. Also, the CEO of Mattel for 30 years was a woman. She's actually one of the most famous, I believe she was the inventor and of many of the products lines there. So that kind of goes against logic as most of the movie does. But throughout the whole movie, they make Ken, of course, look like a, a half the movie was them talking about how much of a disadvantage it is to be a woman in modern society, which is not, to st not statistically correct in any way when you look at the breakdown of workforces and you look at all the benefits, so let's just think for ten, one tenth of a second. Who has a longer lifespan? Well, well that, that, that's women. They certainly have a longer lifespan. Who spends less time in jail? Well, that, that's women. Who dies more in war? No, no men do, so men, women have an advantage there. Um, yeah, they, they have an, a lot, a lot of advantages. But in the movie, of course, it's used completely. And also, it's perplexing to think, who this movie is for. Now, I think Ben missed out in terms of the his audience analysis. He noted that his critique was he thought it was mainly for moms with eight-year-old or nine-year-old children. I would think it's also for a lot of the ants too, the ants who don't have kids or maybe the gals who are just older and more feminist, but it's rated PG-13, so those kids shouldn't be going there. Granted, most parents don't do their jobs these days in terms of actually analyzing and critiquing media before putting it into their kids. An oversight that surely will cause society benefits a cultural decline i'm sure but so it's those instances where kids nowadays parents are dumb enough to just give them a smartphone so they're just glued to that little smartphone most of their life they're not really taking time to try to be creative or play with dolls like people did back in the day before the proliferation of all these technologies which i would argue is also another thing culturally speaking it's not going to be good when they can't really socialize too much or don't really have any imagination but Time shows doesn't see how that for the degrade society, but it's fascinating to see that. So Mattel greenlit this movie, which made Mattel itself look bad because they in the movie they make Mattel look evil and trying to force Barbie back into the Barbie world where she they didn't really do a great job communicating this, but she goes from the fake world to the real real world. And it's just a bizarre thing that it'll probably make a fair amount of money just because of the intellectual property. It's been a staple of the of culture for decades, but. I don't see people repeat watching this film more than once. I don't think that I don't think there's a really a rewatch factor where you gain more, or you actually learn more. There's more in-depth analysis every time. It's pretty, um, pretty surface level. There's not really much in-depth thinking. Granted, it's a Barbie movie. I don't expect much of it. And they also have a bunch of inappropriate jokes about masturbation, which again, parents are bringing their, these their kids to this. That's not appropriate in any way. So, it's one of those things where. It's perplexing that they made the movie. It'll probably make a fair amount of money just because of the intellectual property, but in terms of staying the test of time, like a, uh, making a film that's going to test really last generations and people really enjoy it, I suspect it's going to be just a, a flash pan or a, a single blip on the radar of cinema history. It's not going to be anything like The Matrix where you look at it 20, 30 years later and there's a lot of the same, a lot of great reoccurring themes that kind of align with society. Um, the CGI actually looked pretty darn impressive back then compared to now. That movie, I would argue, certainly withstand the test of time. I mean, the, also, you could kind of tell the quality of the movie when the number of parodies seemingly never end because it's so good, there's a lot of parallels, and they copy it, which some would argue is the best form of flattery. But that's just my three cents. Time shall tell to see. And let me know if you want to see a full in-depth analysis of the Barbie movie. Now, other interesting cultural news, you have Elon Musk relabeling Twitter, and it's now called X. And of course, it is interesting that it's still beating threads after every media outlet that you could possibly imagine constantly hammering into your head saying threads is going to be the biggest thing. It's going to destroy Twitter. Twitter is nothing. But yeah, not so much. So it's not too much of a surprise that they're relabeling it to X. You have Elon's long-term goal of having one app to rule them all, one app to find them, and in the darkness bind them. Wait, no, wait, that's, that's Lord of the Rings. But nevertheless, that is also Elon's goal as well. I suspect he's a, a big Tolkien fan or Tolkien fan. That's just my three cents. And 
perhaps, you know, that's part of his long-term plan, but maybe it's also just a rebranding. You've seen this with a lot of tech companies. There's also, I suspect, business and org structure tax incentives when, if you think about Facebook, they relabeled to or reorganize or organize the company to have the parent be Meta, which they would argue, say, hey, it gives us a little bit more control. We can have more have diverse product lines. Basically, to me, it was them trying to rebrand because Facebook had a pejorative reputation, especially around data privacy or lack thereof. And they could pretend like they're trying to diversify and say, oh, yeah, we do more than just Facebook. But now we have Meta. We have the, the Metaverse, which has graphics of a 1998 Sims video game, although perhaps with less intelligence. They have that and other stuff, too. They also bought out Oculus a couple years ago. And then you also have Google, which, of course, everyone still calls Google, even though the new parent company name is Alphabet. And I suspect there's also tax incentives and business incentives for having to restructure that way. But those tech companies also did, they spent a vast amount of money relabeling everything. It'll be interesting to see how much does Elon push it in terms of that. Now, legally, Twitter did change their name to X-Corp, or, um, X-Corp a couple months back. So it's not too surprising, but a lot of people are shocked that the logos are gone. So if you log into Twitter right now, even on your smartphone or desktop, if you like the bookmark, the little bird's gone, it's just the X. Now, in terms of marketing and branding, I don't know what to say. I would probably, maybe a B plus, because Elon's had that intellectual property. His first business that he started, the tech company, was a financial online financial company, and he quickly merged with another one to form PayPal. So that was the original domain was x.com. He owned it for the longest time. And this is part of his long-term plan to build that up, but I don't know what, surpla- what surplanted what in terms of the cultural significance of x.com in terms of the adult content related to that. I mean, they're allegedly, I would never know, but it's one of those things, well, actually, well, my... From a business perspective, I'm fascinated. MindGeek is the big company that owns pretty much all Dunk content. They're headquartered out of Canada. There's a tech guy who actually bought up all the studios. And from a business perspective, a very fascinating use case. But in terms of just the optics of an X.com or X, I don't think it's as, as widespread positive as Elon thinks. Because you do have X videos, which, of course, as it would sound, culturally, that's probably most people to refer to that and understand that is an adult content video. And Elon is trying to build the one app for everything. Just the optics of having X.com for like financial, or I don't know if the brand is as strong as he thinks it is, or if he has the resources. Well, if anyone has the resources, he does. I don't know what kind of marketing initiatives and planning you'd have to do to change the whole cultural reference for that domain and for that idea. I'm sure he's capable, but it seems like a big marketing, a big cultural shift you'd have to make to have his idea come to fruition. Now, the good news about Twitter, or now X, is that they're still beating Threads. Now, it looks like Threads is basically disintegrating, especially with their average user time, which when you're measuring an app in terms of performance, when you're talking to advertisers, which that is what Elon is really desperate of, they need advertising dollars because they're still losing money. When you talk to advertisers, there's a couple things they always look for in terms of metrics. One of the most important metrics specifically is screen time, also known as how long do the brain dead, I mean users, have their eyeballs glued to that screen without doing another task? Or how many hours a day are they spending worshiping that little light box in their pocket? Now, Threads had started off relatively strong for the industry. It looks like their average screen time for a user was 19 minutes a day, which Obviously, they want more the better in terms of you want that number to be huge if you're the app company. But within a couple of weeks, their current daily rate right now is closer to four minutes. So that's horrible retention, and people are barely checking in these days. Now, it also doesn't help that there's not even a search function on threads, apparently. So you can't actually search for a topic or an idea or a, a, a genre. You can only search people. So that's a big limitation in and of itself that gives you less incentive because what if you just want to watch a video about, I don't know, people go crazy about like um, a cat in a coffee mug or a dog or a new puppy or you know, something like that that's really internet viral material. Well, you can't really find that. You can only find like a username related to those topics. And even that would be pretty limited because a lot of people don't have usernames that correlate to their topics. So that's another thing that's holding them back. Now, Threads had started off pretty strong in terms of the number of users, 
within the first week, they had 100 million users, which is unprecedented for an app success. Also kind of false in my opinion, because it wasn't really like they had to do a lot of effort to become a user of Threads, specifically because it was an app beside an app beside an app. So if you had Instagram already, all you do is basically check a couple boxes, signing away your privacy and your soul, also including they'll know everything about you, including your credit score, sexual orientation, religious, everything. And it was pretty, it was pretty, very low barrier to entry. So pretty easy to sign up and they actually were brilliant in terms of you can't delete it without also deleting your Instagram. So I suspect the total users overall won't really change too much, but the number of active users just drop is dropping down precipitously day after day after day. Now contrast that Twitter, their number of active users now ever about a week average, Every day, their average number of users, 200 million, which is insanely better than Threads. I know they've been a, a, around for quite some time as well. You can also argue so is Facebook, so you maybe you should have had a better conversion rate as well with Mark's idea. But Twitter has 200 million daily active users. And those users, more importantly, spend an average time on their screens for 30 minutes. Now this is according to a third party study by a company by the name of Sensor Tower. And that's a lot more time. And advertisers love that. Now, the issue is that Elon has right now is still, advertisers are still wary of Twitter. Ever since he bought it, they're about 50% down in terms of advertiser dollars. He tried to offset by having the $8 per month subscription service, which I usually, I think I bought about a couple months in after he started the company, just, just so, I can support the idea of free speech. Now, unfortunately, he is far from a free speech absolutist and looks like the new CEO, um, Linda Macarena. I'm just kidding, Yacarino, but she might do the Macarena, perhaps. There's no studies that say she doesn't. But nevertheless, her whole background is advertising. And she was brought in to bring back those marketing dollars. Rudimentary speaking, that was, I believe, the main reason he hired her. And this rebrand might help because then they can go to advertisers, maybe go to all the big boys, got you know Apple, Visa, MasterCard, all, all the big companies and go, hey, you know, we're we're a new company, we're not Twitter, this is the new Twitter, this, this is X.com, this is X, the X app. So that I don't know how many advertisers are gonna be, I don't wanna say fooled, but I don't know how much of them are going to have a change in comfort level in terms of advertising the platform now versus before, just because they're changing their name and logo. They're probably gonna be more incentivized because of Linda's stance on, or rather her lack of stance on the free speech, where they're actually starting to, again, unfortunately suspend, threaten people. They're actually starting to censor more. They're pro proclaiming you know, freedom of speech, not freedom of reach, which is BS. All that means is we're gonna blacklist you so no one can actually see you unless you specifically search for someone, which what's the point of having a follower if they don't see your stuff when you tweet? I would argue basically nothing which is why they want you to buy tweets. So you can actually pay to promote your tweet, which I don't know any user or individual who would do that feature. I've thought about maybe trying that for my tech company as you try to do promotional events where we're having an upcoming Topgolf event. So I thought maybe throw in 20, 30 bucks to see how many additional people see that and how many people register for the event. But the, now, the actual controls weren't as good as something like Facebook where Facebook say what you want they know all the data basically you can actually very well filter your promoted post on Facebook so if your business wants to target specific people based on geography job title age gender you, there's a lot of variables you can control including the cities but with the Twitter it seemed like a lot less controls I might do an experiment and try it a little bit more but it also had a higher increase of cost for Facebook I think the minimum is like five dollars so most people could gamble that on a marketing initiative. You're not gonna get a lot of hits or a lot of views additionally for that, but it kind of kind of like the training wheels. It lets you try out the experience of doing an advertisement on Facebook's platform. And I would I would have thought Twitter would have a much lower price point. I think the the cheapest is I believe it was a hundred dollars, which for most people that might not be anything. But if you're a small business or if you're just trying it out for the first time, I mean that may or may not make sense to do. So actually, if I go to twitter.com, the website is still twitter.com, but the logo at the top left is an X, and it looks like the tweet still says tweet, and the search bar says search Twitter. But if I tweet something, 
And I want to say like, let's see, that's my business account. What if I go to my discard, my personal account? I wonder how much it would be to promote it. Tweet. And interestingly enough, I'm not seeing it now. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. So it's a good idea, but how will it be executed and will it really lure in advertisers? That's the big question because they still need to get, they need to break even at least. And obviously they need to make money because Elon also has investors. He didn't just buy it this himself. Yes, he is the largest shareholder and he put out the most money to purchase it. But you also have individuals, countries, as well as banking institutions that backed him as well. And they're looking for an ROI. Historically speaking, Elon's pretty good at making a good ROI and he's had a very successful career and a track record. That being said, no one is perfect. Could this be the first time he falls? Who, who knows, time shall tell. But as Thread starts to dwindle away, it seems Twitter is a little bit more secure than many thought, or perhaps many were desperately hoping on mainstream media as you had every news outlet from the left to even, you know, I know Fox News nowadays has been demasked, so a lot of people just call it Diet CNN, but a lot of the mainstream news outlets, including Microsoft's LinkedIn, they're all saying how Threads is going to crush Twitter. And apparently that little bird, or I guess in this case, this little X, is a little bit stronger than I thought. Now, other interesting business news, somewhat related to Twitter and social media, you have YouTube slashing ad revenue for creators, which, that's not good. Although, doesn't affect us yet because we're not monetized yet. Someday we will. That's, that's the hope. Also, gives me another opportunity to do the cliche plug of please take the time to like, subscribe, and comment. Obviously, that helps out the channel. The more resources we get, the more we can increase the production, yada, yada, yada. Goal is to try to get to 3,000 subscribers in July. I know we only have a couple days left, but I'd really appreciate it if you take the time to click that button. Now, it looks like this comes from a couple of YouTubers who noted that specifically and oddly enough, back in November 16, 2022, the revenue per 1,000 views dropped 70 to 90% overnight, which is astronomical. Now, YouTube claimed, of course, well, YouTube is owned by Google, which is owned by Alphabet, a lot of companies involved here. They claimed it was a simple bug and then it got fixed. But I don't think anyone is foolish enough to believe that. I mean, Google is one of the most robust tech companies on the planet. They have outages and issues every once in a while, but to have an issue that directly is an advantage, advantageous to them, that's when I get, personally, when I hear about things where companies, politicians, businesses, every time I hear, well, there's a clerical issue, if it's to their benefit, then I'm automatically a little bit more suspicious of what could possibly be going on. Now, keep in mind, a trend of YouTube and the industry in general is losing ad revenue. When I say losing, it's decreasing every year. So YouTube, specifically that platform, they're getting about 2% less money from advertisers every single year. That adds up, and that's all. You know, 2% might not sound like a lot. We're talking about 2% of billions of dollars. So they need to cut the cost somewhere because they're making less money. Also, another thing to remember about YouTube, most of the content on there loses YouTube money. So when you look at most of the channels on YouTube, most of them are not actually monetized. So you have a lot of the independent and smaller channels where they're just making content. Right now, YouTube is paying to host this video on their infrastructure. They're not making any money off of it. I'm not either, but someday I will, in theory. And also, if you already need technologies, time technologies can exist. The only reason this channel could exist is because it's subsidized by a tech company I own that is able to buy the resources for the editing PC, the camera, and, but if you look at YouTube, most channels, YouTube's losing money. Because just think about a rack mount server, which pejoratively speaking, if you're not in tech, it's basically fancy talk for someone else's computer. So instead of having a laptop, hosting the website, hosting the video on your desk, is it in a data center, on, in a rack of servers, but Google has to pay for that hardware. Not only are they paying for the server, so the actual hardware where the video resides, but they also have to pay for the storage capacity. They have to pay for the data center. Data center has cooling, heating, internet, network. So you have to buy switches upon switches. There's a lot of infrastructure behind that. And I'm actually surprised YouTube isn't cutting or increasing the requirements to post videos. Yes, they need a massive amount of content. One of the reasons they're the most popular platform is because they bled money for years to build up the population. Bleeding money being a, a financial term where they're losing money. 
so they did that for years. So I, I tell people when it comes to building those platforms, Google is only one of the few companies that can do it. Rumble is slowly getting better and better and better. But you notice a few things. They limit the quality of their videos. They're starting just now to pay creators. So they're making a lot of progress. But the video quality, the 4K video, especially I'm surprised you can do that for, for free on YouTube. I can post my 4K video there. That's even more data that I have to compress, they have to store it. So YouTube is trying to figure out how can we possibly sustain this long-term if we're losing money year a year. That's partially why you've seen the business model of YouTube evolve exponentially. That's why if you join a live stream, they are really encouraging to people to do the stickers, the super chats, and I believe those have a breakdown of about 70-30. So 70% of that money does go to the creator, but YouTube gets 30%, which is pure profit if it's just a sticker or if it's the live stream chat, they just highlight your chat and it stays up. So hopefully the creative will read it. I think this is most famously done on Timcast IRL, which is a pretty good podcast, as well as a YouTube show as well. But that's something that doesn't cost YouTube too much money in terms of the technology to make those things happen, but it helps them make a little bit more money off of it. And they also have an issue, or not an issue, they have an idea. It'll be, I don't know what the adoption rate is, but you can actually subscribe to a specific channel. So not only can you have the free subscription, so if you just click that button right now to subscribe to The Topping Show, it doesn't cost you anything. Maybe maybe eight-tenths of a calorie to click the button and one-tenth of a, a little bit of brain power to click it. Well worth a click, I highly recommend. But there's also a separate one where you can actually pay to subscribe to them. And of course, there's a breakdown between how much YouTube gets versus the creator. And when you look at all the articles and you listen to YouTube creators who have millions of followers and they make 100% of their living on the platform, they'll tell you about the analysis where YouTube is pushing those ideas very heavily. Because YouTube is trying to think, we're getting less and less money for advertisers, very similar to Twitter. How can we reverse this trend? Because we need to keep up our revenue. We need to make this more profitable if we, can, if we want to continue supporting the infrastructure behind it. And it'll be interesting to see how much of this is also involved in politics. Because obviously you have you know elections every November, midterms, presidential elections, and depending on who's in office, you have usually different tax breakdowns for the affect businesses and individuals. How will Google be affected by the next presidential candidate or how will that maybe change? And will they have to censor certain politicians based on how they believe with Google? It wouldn't be the first time, but it'll be interesting to see how does their marketing, how, do, how does Google and YouTube continue to profit off the platform when they're getting less, less money quarter after quarter after quarter, year after year after year from advertisers. Advertising, in terms of business breakdowns, that's one of the simplest things to just cut, especially because most businesses, and again, not to sound pejorative of their business practices, but a lot of them can't really measure their ROI for some marketing initiatives. In terms of, that's why I'm always pessimistic when it comes to like, why do automotive companies pay for an advertisement on TV? You see a video of a car going down a road, okay, but how much of that is really influencing the customer to go buy that vehicle? It's really hard to say. Even if, even if you have the opportunity to sit down with the customer and you ask them directly, why do you purchase this car? It may or may not, they may, may or may not tell you the truth or they may not even tell you that commercial, it may be subliminal. It's, there's a lot of variables that go into it and depending on what you're doing, it's hard to measure. So management cuts marketing. I see this from a tech company in terms of when we're doing partner events with tech companies that we represent, we sell and install and actually do services for, when it's a down economy, they will sometimes cut down on their marketing with other partners because they don't measure an ROI. With my company, we're very good at quantifying everything in terms of you know who's going to the, who registered for the event, who what's the follow-up look like, what's the pipeline generated, what's the ROI. When it comes to YouTube, that's a little bit hard to quantify for them. So it'll be interesting to see how does YouTube evolve as they're trying to adapt and try to make sure that they're going to reverse this trend. Because that's a scary trend. 2% adds up ex more and more and more. And before they know it, it might not be a profitable venture. At which point, Google, they have billions and trillions of assets. Instead of making the money, they would have to subsidize it with different parts of the business. And depending on what the CEO's vision is for long-term success of the company, that may or may not make sense to do. So it'll be interesting to see, and I always say, time shall tell. Now, going on to the political part of the podcast, you have a Norway leader stealing sunglasses and quitting, which is also kind of a hilarious contrast to United States culture. Now, this is a Norwegian left-wing party leader by the name of Bjorn Monixes, and apparently he resigned Monday after stealing a pair of luxury sunglasses from an also airport. 
which is a hilarious contrast to the United States where you literally have politicians magically become multi-millionaires. Some would say it's coming. Some would say that's because it's insider trading and they're legally allowed to do that. I wouldn't say that though, and I would also never kill myself. Let me make that very clear to um, any of the long-term politicians that may be um, mature women whose name rhyme with, rhymes with Billary. I said too much, but nevertheless, her husband is brilliant. He actually has better stock trades than Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett full-time is the guru of Omaha, many call him because he's the most successful, but somehow this politician's husband's is better. Fascinating, but of course they never quit the United States left, right? They just uh, kind of keep on going. Now, it looks like Moxes leads the Norway's Red Party, which has eight seats in the Norwegian parliament. And there's a, he was actually caught on camera June 16th, stealing a pair of Hugo Boss sunglasses in a duty-free shop. So this is hilarious. He's already getting a tax break because there's no taxes in a duty-free shop. One of the benefits to being duty-free. But he still thought he was going to steal sunglasses, which, especially Hugo Boss, kind of low, it's not very classy. And after the video went, the surveillance video went viral, and it looks like he called in sick at the beginning of July. I guess that, in terms of being a politician, that's pretty politician of him to wait about 25 days later, potentially, just kind of chilling and then deciding, oh yeah, now I'll quit. It'll be interesting to see what happens from here, but in terms of political news, that's pretty interesting for someone to actually step down for stealing sunglasses, moderately entertaining to say the least. Now, other interesting political news, you have Ukraine offense delayed because of the lack of munitions, according to Zelensky, which... Just as a friendly reminder, Zelensky is the t-shirt wearer, um, notorious t-shirt wearer, sometimes a polo, sometimes, who was a former comedian and now is a president who banned elections in Ukraine. The United States has given them over $100 billion and he showed up to Congress in a t-shirt. As a wise man once said, suit up for important occasions. I always do. Now, when asked for comment, well, no one really ever asked for comment, but I guess someone did. Now, Zelensky said, quote, we did have plans to start it in spring, but we didn't because, frankly, we do not have the enough munitions and armaments and not enough brigades properly trained in these weapons. Still more that the training missions were held outside Ukraine, unquote. And this is an interview that, of course, was done on CNN. And fascinatingly enough, hmm, I would have, I thought we were told we were only supporting them because they're on the defensive. Because there's a big difference in technologies and weapons that you give to someone if they're on the defenses versus the offensive. In true hypocritical form, the United States, at the beginning of this war, or conflict, whatever I call it, the U.S. actually said we're not going to send cluster bombs to the Ukraine because they're similar to landmines. They are indiscriminate in terms of, depending on what models you have, it's a cluster bomb, as the name would say, is not strategically going after one target. It's a blanket so we said we we're going to, we're not going to give it to them. And in fact, we said we're not going to give it to them because it might even be a war crime. And we actually accused Russia of using them against Ukraine and said, hey, that, that might be a war crime. If it's true, we might have to intervene. Interestingly enough, now the United States, of course, changed their mind. They're going to send them all cluster bombs they want. And now Ukraine is apparently going on the offensive, which is counter to what we've been told since day one. Well, mo most of what we've been told has been wrong since day one. But... Nevertheless, a fascinating development. Now, it looks like in May, Zelensky went around Europe on a three-day vacation, I mean a trip, that included stops in Italy, the Vatican, Germany, France, and the UK, press, pressuring, I mean pressing, allies to send even more weapons to his military as he geared up for the counteroffensive. Now, regardless of who you think is in the right versus wrong, whether you're training for Russia or you're one of the people in the United States who have a Ukraine flag on your lawn, yet you never even flown a United States flag and can't, see what on, can't even see or point them on a, flat, on a map. No matter what side you're on, is it really a good idea to escalate? Somewhat, I, I thought some politician might bring up the option of, well, what if we they negotiated? But actually, ironically enough, the United States actually, via Borstanch and um, the very beginning, we said, no, that's not a good idea. Let's ramp this up. And now they're asking for even more weapons. And we've had rumors that China has just given a big refresh of armament to Russia's military. I believe this is specifically for some military hardware gear that the German uh, soldiers, would, soldiers would be wearing, so it's wearable technologies. And it'll be interesting to see what goes on from here, but I think every, 
most people should be concerned that citizens are going to, or civilians are going to be hurt on both sides. And one would think that it'd be better to move towards some type of negotiation. And this is something where the U.S. could end this tomorrow. All the U.S. has to do, in my three cents, just tell Ukraine, you don't get a penny more until you guys go negotiate. The U.S. is propping that up completely. Over $100 billion in cash, as well as military armaments. And now we're actually sending soldiers, not directly in Ukraine apparently, right into Poland. Perhaps to send a message, that's a tactic that has been used for many years, hence the, probably the most popular use case being North Korea versus South Korea, but we have bases there as well. And many uh, military men fighting, um, not fighting, they're stationed there. So it might be, maybe that's a tactic, maybe it's to ramp it up, but unfortunately it doesn't seem like this issue is going to get resolved and there's a lot of people who want to go visit their homes, their families. And at the end of the day, I really hope everyone is, we can resolve it as peacefully as possible and it'd be nice to have the less bloodshed the better. Time shall tell, but we can try to be hopeful. Now, going on to the business blunder of the day. You have Craftsman shutting down a $90 million factory in the best country at state. Although I would argue it's a country. It's a country first. Texas. Now, Craftsman was one of the most popular brands in tool history. Now, it looks like Black, Stanley Black & Decker actually bought the company in 2017 for $900 million. And specifically, the CEO at the time, and I believe still is, James Laurie said, they're hoping to, quote, re-Americanize the brand, unquote. Now, in terms of the brand and the history, it's been kind of an OEM, or original equipment manufacturer, a white labeler, more accurately, where a lot of the things they actually didn't make themselves. Now, in terms of the company history, the Craftsman trademark was registered May 20th, 1927 by Mike Burroughs. He was actually the head of the company's hardware department. He really liked the Craftsman name, and apparently he actually bought the rights to use it from Marion Craftsman Tool Company for $500. Talk about the ROI or the return on investment of the century. Took something that was worth $500 on paper for the name, became worth $900, $900 million, which pretty, that's perhaps that's only second to the Dallas Cowboys in terms of taking something that was worth nothing and now it's worth billions of dollars. They don't win games, but the brand is worth billions of dollars. So I give Jerry Jones many credits in that regard. Now, the brand was owned by Sears exclusively, so that's why it, that was the one place you can buy it. It was that location. It was brilliant in terms of marketing. It means you had to go to that store to get those. And in terms of this tool and Americana, it's kind of a, a cliched staple of the America. Every grandpa had a craftsman wrench because they're damn near indestructible and they had a lifetime warranty. Historically speaking, they were actually manufactured by Emerson. So they were the manufacturer who actually made them. They would, you know, put the crap, they make it, put the craftsman name on it, send it to Sears exclusively because they had that contract. Then they would sell them to the end users. But they were so damn durable, and the warranty was so good. I remember talking to mechanics where they had an issue where they couldn't reach a bolt, so they would take a torch, bend the craftsman wrench, so they could finagle around to loosen the bolt, bend it back, or even just leave it as is. Go to Sears and get a new one for free. It was one of the best examples of a no BS warranty. And pretty, nowadays, there's only a couple of companies, I believe Snap-on has a reconditioning program where if you have something that's broken, give it to your Snap-on sales rep and he will actually take it back. They'll actually refresh old tools. It's pretty cool. But it was one of the best brands in the Sears portfolio. And as well, also one of the nice, what was it nice? It was uh, sad to see Sears sell it and another big sign that the company was in dire, dire deaths because that was their most Perhaps one of the most popular and strongest brands they controlled. Now, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Now, back in 2019, they announced that they were going to open a factory in Texas to bring American-made Craftsman back. So Stanley Back and Decker actually bought the brand from Sears, brilliantly enough, and I believe they actually have an exclusivity contract with Lowe's. Ironically enough, because Lowe's, of course, used to be a competitor to Sears. So now, if you want to get Craftsman, got to go to Lowe's. Brilliant. It makes people go into the store. And if you like that brand enough, you will go to that store exclusively for that brand. And you'll buy that brand and other brands as well. Now, they're going to retool this factory. And they're closing it because they couldn't figure out how the robotics worked. Perhaps the most pathetic excuse ever. Now, there's actually a $90 million plant headquartered in Fort Worth, Texas. It's going to employ up to 500 full-time employees. And have, apparently had a state of the 
of state-of-the-art machines to churn out American-made tools made with American domestic steel. And it, the idea was going to be, is going to manufacture their iconic series. You got the Crescent wrenches, the ratchets, and the sockets, all with the American steel. They could stay in business for decades just manufacturing 10 millimeter sockets alone because those always go missing within 13 minutes of purchase. Some people get really lucky and they'll have like a 10 millimeter socket that's like been with them longer than that. And there's a rumor that there's a man who actually had his original 10 millimeter socket from the original socket set he bought when he was a kid. I think he's in the Guinness World Book of Records actually for being the one person to do that. Nevertheless, I digress. They had this great plan, it's gonna be a great factory. And they started to turn out a couple, a couple of units. They did produce a couple, but it ended up being one of those things where the robotics that they purchased, they weren't the best brand apparently. And they weren't able to tune them in to the point where they can make it profitable. And again, when it comes to manufacturing in the United States, one of the biggest issues is one, the labor costs, also, you know, regulations, OSHA, lawsuits. There's a lot of things that make it very difficult. But labor costs and injuries are two of the most two of the most difficult things to overcome. Now, you can do that with more safety, but also another thing factories have done throughout the years, especially you look at manufacturing with tools and now chips, because the United States realized semiconductors are important to try to make some of them here versus being relied on other countries almost exclusively. You have the factory to turn out these tools and the robots just didn't really work. So they produced a couple of the units and they've of course become collectibles. I'm hard, just because they're made in Texas, half me, I'm, I'm inclined to almost want to buy them just for that reason alone. But it looks like these were supposed to retail for $89.98 for a little, nice little red pack or a little carrying case, the terrible plastic ones they, they always come with. But nevertheless, they were supposed to retail for about $89.98 before tax. And now they're going for several hundred dollars on auction websites like eBay just because of the provenance of the factory's being shut down. It's debatable if they're ever going to try it again because of the big upfront costs you have to do. So unfortunately, it seems like that'll be a good collectible. They're going for a couple hundred dollars now on eBay. And in terms of, you know, buy it while you can, this might be one of the rare opportunities where you probably should because if they failed once with these robots, I can't... It'd be a prohibitive project to take on when they just did this project and failed so epically. I don't see them doing it any time soon. And hopefully I'm wrong. I really do hope they're actually able to bring back another factory in Fort Worth, employ those people who are working there again. They didn't ramp up to the 500 employees, but they did have a couple, or a couple hundred, I believe. Because, call me old fashioned, but sometimes American made just makes sense. And gosh, I'll be darned if there's nothing more bulletproof than a crafts, craftsman wrench. It's, it's a staple of every toolbox. So hopefully they're able to get their jobs back and hopefully they make it take another whack at it. And time shall tell. Thank you everyone for taking the time to tune in today. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and comment. Each one of those things greatly helps out the channel. Try and get to 3,000 subscribers by the end of July. We've got a couple days left and I feel like we can do it. Also, don't forget to tell your family, tell your friends, tell your coworkers. Heck, tell your enemies, tell anyone and everyone. Just stay safe and fight the good fight.